we're reading is Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 33 to 50. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah would certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter, the, enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out and if your foot causes you to stumble cut it off it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell and if your eye causes you to stumble pluck it out it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to this, uh, this morning's study in Mark's Gospel. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church in Cape Town, South Africa. We're very excited to be resuming in-person services in our church building this morning. And if you've been joining us online during these months of the lockdown, we very much hope you will consider coming along. Now, of course, we are committed to your safety and to complying with government regulations. So if you are intending to come, please fill out and submit the required form for each person attending, including children. And you can find the link to this form on the homepage of our website, www.sbbc.org.za. Well now, as we begin, please have your Bible open at the passage that Gillian has just read for us, Mark 9, from verse 33. And before we begin, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for making a way for us to meet together again after these long months of separation. We pray that you would bless this time to us this morning by opening your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's not easy to remember sermons. Uh, Not long ago, a man wrote to his local newspaper telling them that he's been going to church for 30 years. He's heard a hundred sermons a year, so 3,000 sermons in all. And in his letter, the man said, I can't remember any of them. Should my pastor try something else? His comments caused quite a number of people to write into the newspaper with their own thoughts. And the discussion was only brought to a close when somebody wrote in and said, look, I've been married for 30 years. I've had 30,000 meals. I can't remember any of them. But without them, I would have starved to death. Now that's exactly right, isn't it? It is the ongoing feeding of the body and the soul, which might not always be spectacular, but which is absolutely essential for life. And on Sunday mornings, Mark's Gospel is providing us with the spiritual vitamins every believer needs to keep us going in our daily walk with Jesus Christ. Now if you look with me at Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, you'll notice three words at the end of the verse which are highly significant. It says that Jesus and his disciples are on the road, or literally, on the way. They're on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die on the cross. And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he allows himself to be arrested and crucified and he wins a tremendous victory on the cross, we will have arrived at the turning point of human history. Because believe it or not, the cross of Jesus is the turning point in human history. Why? Well, it's his death on the cross which opens the door into God's family and opens the door into eternal life. And whenever a person discovers that door and walks through it, everything in that person's life is brand new. So the cross of Christ literally changes the world. Now, what Jesus teaches his disciples on the road is that he's going to accomplish his mission and in the process he's going to create a new people and the values of these people are going to be radically different their lives are going to be shaped by the values of heaven rather than the values of the world but at this point in Mark's gospel all of that's in the future because if we ask what has Jesus been talking to them about on the road Verse 31 tells us that Jesus has been telling them that he's going to be betrayed and then killed and then rise. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that would have gripped them. You would think that would be the sole topic of conversation, that it would humble them. But look at what they're actually discussing in verse 34. They're discussing who's the greatest. And when we read that, we think, well, what a ridiculous and embarrassing conversation. So imagine coming to church this morning and when you arrive you find Raymond and Mariano and White huddling in a corner 
and when you get closer you find they're arguing about who's the greatest I mean that is absurd and they would never do it but I suspect that the conversation in chapter 9 might have been triggered by the fact that three of the disciples had just been up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus the other nine, you remember, had been left behind and it might be that on the road to Jerusalem that one of the nine said to the three well, why did Jesus pick you and not us? and maybe the answer came back well, he normally does pick us we seem to be the three among the twelve and it's possible we have a special role and therefore a superior position and then the three say to the other nine oh and by the way what happened back there with the boy how come you couldn't do anything to help I mean when we went out on the mission back in chapter 6 we were driving out demons with the authority of Jesus we were doing that but you seem to be no good at it well it might have been something like that we don't know but when Jesus calls them together and says what were you talking about nobody says a word silence because of course it's embarrassing Jesus has been talking to them about his sacrifice and they've been speaking about their success so look at verse 35 Jesus sits down which is what a rabbi does when he's going to teach and he begins to teach them very carefully how they are to see other people and how they are to see themselves and I can't imagine there's anybody listening this morning including me who couldn't use some instruction from Jesus about how to see self and how to see other people and as Jesus begins to teach them how they are to see other people and how they're to see themselves Jesus is not so naive as to think that his little pet talk is going to change their minds and hearts and lives so Jesus is not thinking here this message is going to cause them to get up and say Amen, we'll do it we're going to be brand new selfless transformed people Jesus is not so naive as to be thinking that but what he is going to do is that he's going to take himself through to Jerusalem and die on the cross which is going to unleash a brand new life into the hearts and minds of the believers and that brand new life is going to make it possible to put into practice what Jesus is teaching in other words it is the life which gives the power to the teaching so this little section from verse 33 to 50 is a unit it begins, you'll notice this, with the disciples arguing and it ends in verse 50 with Jesus saying be at peace because of course that's what Jesus is able to achieve in the heart of a self-centered individual a transformation through his death which works for peace now there are lots of ideas in these verses but I'm going to try and put them under just two headings this morning the first is that Christian tolerance means there should be wide fellowship that's the first nine verses verse 33 to 41 and the second heading is that Christian intolerance means there should be 
careful discipleship. And that's from verse 42 to 50. So have you got it? Christian tolerance, wide fellowship. Christian intolerance, careful discipleship. So firstly then, Christian tolerance means there should be wide fellowship. You see, we Christians are meant to be both tolerant and intolerant at the same time. So I hope you don't make the mistake of thinking that as Christians we're always meant to be tolerant and never intolerant. We're meant to be both. In fact, if you think about it, all sensible people are both tolerant and intolerant. So, for example, you're meant to be tolerant of your family, but intolerant of a thief or an intruder. If you're a doctor, you've got to be tolerant about who you treat, but intolerant about poor hygiene. If you're a teacher at school, you've got to be tolerant of the children, all of them, but intolerant of the stranger lurking at the school gates. So everyone, Christian or not, is meant to be sensibly tolerant and intolerant. So what does Jesus say about Christian tolerance and wide fellowship? This is very important. If you're the sort of person like me who needs to be set free from what John Stott used to call the little dungeon of yourself, and if you want to be a blessing to other people, and I'm sure you do, and if you want to glorify God, and I'm sure you do, you need to know what Jesus teaches here. So look at verse 35. Jesus says, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Now that's the headline. That is the key truth. That's the summary of the teaching. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Now what Jesus is saying is that if you think you should seek your own preferences, if you think you deserve a position of greater importance, if you think that becoming greater in prosperity, success and recognition is something you not only want but you actually deserve, Jesus says, has it ever occurred to you that there is a greater greatness than that? There is a greatness, says Jesus, where you don't get the immediate benefit. Someone else does. But you are the source or the cause of their benefit. Now these are famous words, aren't they? You are to be a servant. We're not to try to be the first, but the last. They're some of the most famous words in the New Testament. But are they actually as revolutionary and supernatural as we think they are? Because we know that people can serve other human beings, whether they're Christians or not. So we know that a soldier can put himself last for the sake of his platoon. We know that a parent can put themselves last for the sake of their children. And we know that an animal can risk their own lives to protect the more vulnerable members of the herd. So you see, what Jesus is teaching here is not that you'll do something that is completely abnormal. Rather, he's teaching that when you become a Christian, 
there will be a radical and complete transformation. It's as if the pressure which comes at us from the world, which says, you deserve everything, and which comes to us from the human heart, which says, has anyone remembered me? It's as if the world and the flesh get replaced by a brand new dynamic, a brand new priority. And the brand new priority comes from the very heart of Jesus himself. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, a new life will be unleashed into the people of Christ. And this new life, this new heart, this new love, this new priority begins to work its way into the lives of all his people, slowly but surely. I guess we might sometimes hear this particular Bible text at a valedictory, at an end-of-term school assembly. You can imagine the headmaster saying to the students, be a servant. Indeed, I wonder how many schools in Cape Town have this verse as a motto. I guess it's even possible you might hear it at a business seminar. We should be serving. But my guess is that a school or a business seminar would say that the serving is the path to success. But Jesus is teaching something totally different, which is that when you're serving another person, you've already arrived. The serving is not the stepping stone to greatness, it is the greatness. And the reason that we're able to think like this is that when we belong to the King of Kings, and we belong to his kingdom, which is wonderful beyond words. The trinkets, the trinkets and the rewards of the world suddenly seem very small by comparison. And by the grace of God, we find ourselves wonderfully set free with a brand new nature. The American pastor, Tim Keller, has said something very helpful on this passage. He says, in Western culture... What Jesus says about serving, forgiving and turning the other cheek is admired, it's considered to be impressive. People like it, even if they can't do it. But when you take the New Testament teaching on marriage and sexuality, people in Western culture say, that's ridiculous, it's out of date. Equally, if you board a plane and fly to the Middle East and you ask someone, Tell me, what do you think about New Testament teaching on human sexuality? They'll say, it's absolutely right. But if you ask them, what do you think about the New Testament teaching on serving, forgiving, and turning the other cheek? They'll say, it's ridiculous. It's unworkable. It's totally naive. And Tim Keller comments, that shows that we all try to impose the standards of our culture on the Bible. And we try to decide where the Bible is right and wrong. But that's absurd. Because the Bible is the word of God. And we should expect the Bible to challenge us, to confront us with our own prejudices and our own weaknesses. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that they must see themselves as servants belonging to a very great servant with a brand new nature. And then from verse 36 onwards, Jesus looks at the disciples and tells them how they should see other people. 
For example, he wants them to welcome other believers. He wants them to encourage other believers. And he wants them to value other believers. So look at verse 36. Jesus takes the little child, gets him to stand in the middle, and the text says that he wraps his arms around him. Now why does Jesus take a child? Well, because in that culture, a child was insignificant. Jesus is not teaching that the child is cute, or humble, or innocent, or anything like that. No, these disciples, you see, are so focused on themselves, and so dismissive of other people, that Jesus is teaching them to welcome the believer that they might consider to be utterly insignificant, because Jesus considers them to be highly significant. And Jesus is saying, you, you have to see them as God sees them. You're to see them as fellow members of God's family. Now the world assesses people in certain ways. And you and I need to unlearn the world's way of judging people. It's so natural for us to like people who are attractive or nice or, or thoughtful or friendly and educated. Jesus doesn't mention any of those things. He says we're to welcome anyone who comes to us in the name of Christ as if Christ himself had sent them. And then he says we are to widen the application. Because suddenly the Apostle John speaks up in verse 38. And he says, Lord, we saw someone driving out demons. They were doing it in your name. But they weren't one of us, so we told them to stop. Now, us there is a very interesting word, isn't it? One of the commentators says, being in the inner circle seems to have had a bad effect on John, as inner circles often do. And Jesus says to John, you're mistaken. You've driven away someone who by the grace of God may have been coming to faith and fellowship. Why drive away someone that God is bringing in? So friends, you and I need to be aware of the kind of criticism or legalism or exclusive attitude that throws a bucket of cold water over someone who's taking their first baby steps into the Christian faith. You see, John wants to limit the fellowship to his own tiny little circle. But Jesus wants to widen it. Of course, Jesus is not naive. He's not saying it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think or who you serve. He's simply saying, let's be generous on the assumption that the person who's coming may actually be coming home to God. And we also need to, to value the ministry of another disciple. They might only be bringing you a cup of water. But what they're doing, although it doesn't seem significant to you, is noticed by the Father. He notices them bringing the cup of, a cup of water and he will reward that disciple. So verse 40 is the main thrust of the teaching. It is to take a generous view of another person. Are they fighting against us? No. 
Well, it's quite possible that they're for us. So that's Christian tolerance in the widening fellowship. And I wonder if you can see how revolutionary this is for the local church. Because, of course, we're living in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian. There are many influential people today who want to cut the roots of the Christian faith out of our society as fast as they possibly can. They still want the fruits of the Christian faith. They want all those distinctively Christian virtues of love and joy and peace and so on. But you see, elsewhere, the New Testament says that if you cut the roots of the Christian faith, what you're left with is the works of the flesh. And you end up with anger and rage and slander and violence. And of course those are the things we see in South Africa every day. So let's be clear. Jesus is the secret of kindness, concern and grace. And only he can remake individuals and cultures. And that's why the, the spread of the gospel, when it's genuine, has always brought with it tremendous change for good. And here's Jesus taking that we are to take his spirit and live his fruit to his praise. So that's the first thing this morning. Secondly, and more briefly, Christian intolerance means careful discipleship. And here we're in verses 42 to 50. Now you'll notice these very strong words of Jesus are directed to the disciples. And the message is that they and we are to be intolerant of those sins and dangers and offences which harm other people. So there is a place for Christian intolerance. The culture, of course, says there's no room for intolerance. Intolerance cannot be tolerated says the culture but Jesus says here that there's a lifestyle amongst some Christian people that damages the fellowship and we are not to tolerate it that's why Jesus says in verse 42 I don't want you harming the little one who believes in me and when Jesus uses the phrase the little one he's not only talking about children he's talking about a believer any believer and Jesus says I don't want you to cause a believer to fall away now I feel this very keenly because I'm aware how easy it is for a pastor to offend a member of the local church either through his own sin or through the teaching and Jesus gives an extremely serious warning about this in verse 42 once again it's the famous verse and what Jesus is saying is that it would be better for you to strangle yourself and then throw yourself into the sea than to strangle the faith of another person. And that's followed by the very famous warnings in verses 43 to 48. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, cut out your eye. Now that's obviously not literal because if you're left with one eye you can still sin and you can still sin with one hand or one foot but what Jesus means is 
take drastic action on yourself in order not to cut off another person's place in the fellowship. Rather, cut off those things in yourself that might terminate their fellowship. That's what Jesus means. Now these verses are not only about matters of sex and private sin, although of course our private lives always have an effect on our public fellowship. So what I do in private affects my ministry, and whether you realise it or not, what you do in private affects our fellowship at church. And here, four times, Jesus talks about the offence that might cause another believer to fall away. And he urges us to watch ourselves very carefully indeed. So can you get the balance in what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you hold very tightly to some sin, which causes other people to distance themselves from the fellowship, it would be better, says Jesus, if you distanced yourself from those sins in order to help other people remain in the fellowship. And that's the context in which Jesus refers to hell three times. Nobody spoke about hell more than Jesus. The most compassionate, loving man who ever lived spoke again and again about hell because he he knew hell to be real and it was the loving thing to do. Now remember, this is not a public sermon. This is private instruction for the disciples. And he tells them straight that hell is real and he highlights its ongoing dreadfulness. Jesus says the worm doesn't die, the fire doesn't go out. And those, of course, are symbols to teach us that the loss and the pain of hell never stops. And therefore this is a really important issue, isn't it? We need the love of Christ in our hearts so that we'll be prepared to put away those things that destroy fellowship and instead we will bless other people. Well, the last two verses, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. That means everyone will be tested. Christian life is not always plain sailing. And then in verse 50 he says, don't lose your saltiness because if you belong to me, Something is brand new about you. You have become the salt of the world. And something's wrong if you're not distinctively different. So Jesus is saying, let your Christian life be real. So, Christian tolerance widens the fellowship. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of our church family. We're all so different, and yet we are a family. Everyone is accepted and welcomed and loved because of Christ. And a loving church family is one of the great privileges of the Christian life. Equally, Christian intolerance means that we are to work on those things, especially in ourselves, that might harm the fellowship. And all of that's going to be made possible because Jesus goes to the cross and dies and brings to the believer a brand new life, without which Christian life is impossible. 
I want to close this morning by reading you a very short paragraph in a letter written by John Wesley. John Wesley didn't become a Christian until the age of 35, even though he was the son of a clergyman. He'd been looking for the gospel for some time, but no one had explained the gospel to him, even though he'd been in church for many years. And after his conversion, Wesley wrote to one of the ministers who had failed him, who'd put him off. And I think this is a reminder about how much we need to understand the cross if we're going to live the Christian life. This is what Wesley wrote, quote, How will you answer to our common Lord that you, sir, never led me into the, into the light? Why did I scarcely ever hear you name the name of Christ? Why did you never urge me to put my faith in his blood? Is not Christ the first and the last? If you say you thought I had faith already, well then, sir, you know nothing of me. I beseech you by the mercies of God to consider whether the true reason of your never pressing his salvation on me was that you never had it yourself. Well, that's very strong, isn't it? And so as we finish this morning, I want you to picture Jesus single-mindedly going to Jerusalem. And as he goes to Jerusalem, he practices what he preaches. He does costly things in order that he might widen the fellowship, widen it so much that you and I might enter. And when we do enter, and his new life enters into us, the mark of the new life is not that we protect ourselves and pamper ourselves, but rather that we put away those things that would injure another person. And we pursue those things that would bring them into fellowship and closeness and joy. So let's ask for help to do that now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for our Saviour and we pray that the death he died would not be in vain but the new life that you give to us by your Spirit would establish in us a way of living which is gracious to the outsider and realistic concerning ourselves. May it be helpful to the believer and honouring to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.